We'll start with just a, a little review. So we're in the book of Judges. So far, we've covered the first two chapters. This, this week, we'll cover chapter three. In the first two chapters, we have the introductory material. And we've talked about how it's really a, a double prologue, right? That, that we get these two pictures that are setting the foundation. Um, that, that for the, the rest of the passage that we're about to look at, or the rest of the book that we're about to look at. So the first prologue spans from 1-1 to 2-5. The second prologue runs from 2-6 to 3-6. And so we ended at the end of chapter 2, so we're really at the end of that second prologue. And so well, the beginning of chapter 3 is, is kind of finishing off that, that second prologue. The main body of Judges is from 37 to 16:31, and the epilogue is 17:1 to 21:25. And and really, we, we've talked about this many times. It's these these cycles of sin that they're continually going through, and it gets deeper and darker as it goes on each time. It, it gives a, a clearer picture and something that is more difficult to look at. Today we're going to have some detail that will be, um, it, it's surprising detail, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a, in a minute. <clears throat> Looks like Andy's going to do laundry or something. <laughs> All right. So today we'll see God's faithfulness, even in the gory details, through providential punishment and preparedness. So we'll see God's faithfulness even in the gory details, through providential punishment and preparedness. So we're going to look at the passage, and we're going to start. We're going to read all of this. Now, we're not going to read all of chapter 3. Um, we'll, we'll read other um, sections, but this first section here, finishing off that prologue, uh, verses 1 to 6. Would someone read that for us? Judges 3, verses 1 to 6. Thank you. Now these are the nations of the Lord. These are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in, or in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Bahal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamad. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Thank you. So there are some commentators that would say chapter 3, verse 5 is really the, the summary of the first prologue, and chapter 3, verse 6 is the summary of the second prologue. Either way, the picture that we have is Israel was called to do what when it went into the land of Canaan? Drive out, sorry? All the ites, yes, good. Yes, they were, they were called to destroy the people of the land. Excluding Israelites. Yes, oh, nice, good catch. Um, but what do we see here in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3? They're not, they're not destroying them, they're marrying them. They're living with them. They're doing the very thing God asked them not to do. And it's, I was talking to Andy earlier, I think it was this week, and just saying how amazing it is in Joshua 24 when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people say, we will too. And he says, no, you won't. Right? That's what he says. He says, no, you won't. And recognize what you're, what you're committing to. And here we're seeing the fruition of that. And the book of Judges unfolds what that, what that looks like. And so in verses 5 and 6, not only did they not 
put them out of the land because they're to occupy the land, right? Joshua was telling the tribes where the, the, their boundaries were and what they were to go occupy. Not only did they not do that, but they're actually mixing and marrying with them, which, which God had, had forbidden. So we're, we're going to first take a look at the nations, but then we're going to look at this testing and try to understand because it's, it's an interesting thing um, that they would be, that they would know war. So here, is, this is the um, table of nations. And let me just move this over here a second. And can you see that okay? Yes. All right. So here we have Noah, Ham, and then Canaan. And then here are the tribes of Canaan. And really, it, it's just an interesting thing. These, these different sons of Noah really settled in different parts of, of the world at that time. Like those tribes all went to those different areas, right? But here, we're in the land of Canaan, and we're, we're seeing the various tribes that are there, okay? And it, it, it's going to be interesting, because he spells out exactly who it is that was left to test Israel. Back in Judges 2, we're looking at the testing aspect he said, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they, take, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so in chapter 2, this is, this is consequences. This is punishment for them not doing what God had called them to do. And so there, there's this, this weird thing that God is doing, both bringing a punishment, but he's also preparing them, we're going to see as, as we walk through this. So this, this testing we see in two brought about a punishment that, that the Lord said he would bring, and it's, it's important at the end there to see, to see if they would walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so remember that test, because... At the end, he's testing them, and we're going to look at how this even applies to us today, but to see if they would walk in the way of the Lord. We see this in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so there's, there's another test there, again, to examine their heart to know whether they would keep the commandments. Deuteronomy 13.3, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so there's the, the, the test is not related to external things. It's actually related to their obedience and do they know the Lord? Because remember, in the beginning, we were told that that first generation, Joshua's generation, knew the Lord and they knew his works. But this next generation that came did not know the Lord and did not know his works. Right? And, and that, that's how they easily let, were led astray. But let's, let's look at the testing specific to this particular passage that we're, we're, we're talking about. In uh, verse 2, it says, It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now that, that could be kind of tough to swallow, right? It's that, they, that God is saying he wants them to know war and that, that they would teach war to the generations that did not know it. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. <clears throat> and also in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the purpose and providential punishment and preparedness, why would God want, want them to know war? That's like a real question. Why would this say that God wants them to know war? Well, I mean, obviously it's they're surrounded by and they have people in their midst that are uh, uh, enemies of God. Yeah. Good. Even leaving that out, 
over the course of pretty much the entire Old Testament, mm -hmm. Israel demonstrates over and over again that when Israel is at peace, it wanders away, and when put under pressure and crushed under opposition, Israel turns back and calls on God. Yeah. So leave out all the rule, and you would like to have a much, much darker story. Yeah. Great, great point. And 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 consider that that it's in those times of pressure that we see what it is we trust, right? A lot of times, I, I very much see suffering in the sense of what do you trust in? What things are your idols, right? Because that you grab onto when, especially if you suffer, suffer, whatever it is, emotionally, physically, whatever it might be. If you are suffering a great deal, you are gonna you are gonna reach the thing that is your god, your idol, whatever that might be. And so it's a testing for them to know that very thing about themselves. But it's exactly what was said. He wants to teach them war because now they will be at war for a long time, a very long time. In fact, when are they not at war anymore? I mean permanent, like long-term. Sorry, somebody said something back there. No. They're still at war to this day, right? They continue. It's an amazing thing to see. Like, we, we, we read the pages of Scripture, and yet they continue to be at war. Every once in a while, you hear of missiles being fired back and forth. And just consider that nation um, and, what, and what they've been through. But as we look again, biblically, they, they will always, they're going to be at war, and he, he is preparing them for that. Now, he's preparing them in this, in, in Canaan. He's preparing them to fight these smaller tribes that are right around them. But they're going to fight much larger nations after this, and we're, we're going to look at that today, too. Um, but there's a greater reason than that. If, can I get someone to read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 6? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gerishites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make a covenant with them and show them show no favor to them. Through what? Six. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Thank you. And so we, we see there that they are called to destroy the enemies, to tear down these, alt, these altars to false gods. And, it, and in verse 6 it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. If you go down to verse 9... It says, Now uh, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant with, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so the, the call here is to test them that they might see. Are they going to be obedient to the thing that he called? And even though there's, there's something has, has transpired where these nations are going to continue to be a thorn in Israel's side, they are still called to be obedient to what God has, has given them in his word, right? See, after verse 9, it goes on in verse 10 and says, And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes that the, ru the rules I command to you today. See, God takes sin very seriously. And as, as we're going through the book of Judges, there's a lot of times that we're looking at the things that are the, the judges, the deliverers that God has sent, and you're looking at what Israel's doing, and we can struggle with how can God call this to be, right? Even this, this part right here, 
that he called them to no war. How can a loving God want that to happen? Because there's sin in the world. And I think part of sometimes when we evaluate right, the past, when we're evaluating, we're judging what had happened at another time, we take sin too lightly. We don't understand how offensive it is to God, how much God hates sin. He wants to destroy it. Right? And he's calling them to that very same thing. And, and now if we look at, for us today, just considering the tests that we might face, we are to hate sin. He calls us to do that very thing. He hates sin so much, and yet it was only the divine Son of God that could pay for sin. Right? And so when we think of that aspect of it, how much he, he hates sin, that he came and paid the price for sin to bear the wrath of God, that the person who is rejecting Christ is facing the wrath of God, and they already know they're guilty. Think about that position for a moment, right? They, they already know where they stand because part of testing is so that you would get a result and you would know where you stand. And yet, as sinners, we know where we stand before the Lord until we are reconciled to him. So those without Christ stand to face that wrath. Yet, as believers, do we practically forget Christ in daily living? And it puts us in a place for divine discipline. And that's part of what we're seeing here in Judges, right? He's disciplining his people. He's bringing further tests for them to see if they would be obedient. So God is, is, is very serious about sin, and, and we have to keep that in mind as we evaluate the things that we're seeing in the midst of all of this. In Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, war helps us remember there is a great battle going on, and it helps us see where we stand in that battle. When are we capitulating? When are we working for the enemy in that sense? Again, considering the cost to pay for sin. So this war, that they might know war, because they would be in war a long time. And I want to be careful not spiritualizing things, but we need to understand we are in war as well, that we are tested daily, right? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6, examine yourselves, see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that, Je that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find that we have not failed the test. And so those tests reveal our heart. And so that, that ends the prologue. And, and it, it, again, that's setting the foundation. It's giving us that picture of the things that are about to come. And this is the main body that we're, we're about to go into. And Othniel is the first one um, that, that we will look at. Now, we've already seen him in chapter 1, right? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And so those tests are bringing forth results, and what is that result is that it was evil in the sight of the Lord. He saw how they responded. And, and it's interesting because this phrase is used of, of kings later in Israel's history, right? And um, in 1 Kings 15, it talks about the king that was, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm just going to touch on Baal and Asheroth quickly. Baal means Lord. <clears throat> but it's interesting because you have, you have multiple Baals. Uh, often they, they become a local god to various tribes and in different places. You have Baal, Bereth, Barith, the Lord of the Covenant in Judges 9.4. Baal Zebub, which is the Lord of the Flies in 2 Kings 1 and 2. And so these gods, and it, it, if you haven't been to the service yet, 
they're going to be discussing the same thing over there. Um, Chris is, is, is preaching on idolatry and talking much about these things. But they're pursuing these other gods because those gods are pleasing to them. Idols are often things that we can control. Right? We, we like an idol of some kind because it's going to kind of give us the things that we want. Here, um, again, the, those, you're seeing those two different, uh, you, I'm sorry, you're seeing multiple bales, which it's, I don't know that this is really there, but the polytheism versus the monotheism of, of the Israelites, right? Because their gods are all over the place, and they're all different kinds of gods. They have different names that they, they add on. Asheroth is, is interesting. Does anyone know who Asheroth, what that is speaking of? Yes. I'm not entirely sure, but I think I remember the last time Asheroth being Baal's spouse. Maybe spouse, yep. Maybe his mom, which is strange, right? The word talks about grove. It's talking about like a fruitful place. It also is speaking of a, a pole that might represent a tree of, of life. And is, there's multiple versions of this that it, it's hard to nail down, like because it, it's used in... in um, in different ways. And so, but Asheroth is, you're thinking of that fertility because they had the temple prostitutes and that's what this is about. They are uh, an agrarian nate, um, uh, culture and so they need things to grow. And so their gods that they're gonna have are gonna be, are gonna be very fertile, right? They're gonna wanna make sure that all those crops are growing. And so Asheroth, again, I just found it interesting, his mom or his wife, Right? And it also is a pole that represents her. <clears throat> so then we go on to verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rashathium, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rashathium eight years. And so the king of, of Mesopotamia is the first one. So we're told, we're laid that foundation, told these nations were left in order to test you, and then the first one that we have is not one of those nations. In fact, it's, they're not even from the land of Canaan. It's, a, it's kind of strange, right, that it would start out in that way. And so I, I just wanted you to see here, this is Mesopotamia. We don't have really a, a clear picture of where this battle was fought or from where they came. But you can see that this area here between the Euphrates and the Tigris is, is Mesopotamia. Now Israel's over here, and who is the judge we're talking about right now? Othniel, right. And if I just focus in over here, where in Israel is, is Othniel from? Do you remember? As far as west, east, north, south? He's from south, right? He went to Debir, and that's how he got Aksa, Caleb's daughter, right, as a reward for, for winning. And so he's in the south down here. So if we jump back out again, they're really up to the northeast. It's kind of strange that this judge that is down in southern Israel is actually defending against them. But we don't have a clear picture of where that battle happened or where, he, where they came in. So Othniel is a son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Um, like I said, he, he won at Debir, and uh, Aksa, Caleb's daughter, was, uh, became his wife through that. The other thing we see in these verses is that um, in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And so that, that's important for us to see because that doesn't happen with all the judges. In fact, I have a, a list there of, of, it happens actually one time for three judges, and for Samson, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord four times. But the other judges don't specifically, it doesn't say anything about that. That is something for us to keep in mind. And I'm kind of going over this as a, a, as a quick overview because we're going to spend most of our time on this next section here. Um, but... Othniel was a judge. At the end of verse 10 there, uh, it says, and he judged Israel, right? 
not all of them are listed specifically as judges. So some of them are just military, okay? And, and so we, we see a difference there. And actually, the next, the next two that we'll look at today, they, they are just military leaders, really. And so Othniel was in chapter one. He's here. And the first people that he saves him from is the king of Mesopotamia, which is not any of those tribes that were just listed for us for testing, but a nation that's outside of Israel comes in. And Othniel actually faces them and defeats them. So Ehud. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So again, they, they had that test. They failed that test. And what a, just a, it's a little phrase there, but it's, it's really interesting. The Lord strengthened Eglon, their enemy, right? And we, we know from reading scripture that he does this as he uses these nations for these very purposes. But how, how difficult is that for them to process that, the God, that God is enabling, is strengthening their enemy? It says, and he gathered to himself, Eglon is talking about, um, the Ammonites and the Malachites, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So what is the city of Palms? Okay, Jerusalem, any other guesses? Just a guess, Jericho? Jericho, anything else? Begins with J. Jordan, Jordan yeah. It's Jericho. Jericho is the city of Palms. And so we're going to just look at that a little bit here. Um, again, this is, this is when Joshua comes in, and, and they're coming into Canaan. What, what's important about Jericho as it relates to the nation of Israel coming into Canaan? What, what did Jer Jericho represent? The first victory. Their what? The first, the first victory. That was the first place in Canaan that they won. And God acted mightily there, right? He did an amazing thing for them to take Jericho. So think about what that would be to them when the Moabites come in and take over that city. Think about the impact that that would have for them. If someone attacked our nation and they came in and took Washington, that would have special significance, even if we've never lived there, never been there, Right? That would really impact us. And, and think of them at this very time. We're going to get into more detail of this. At this very time that, that the Moabites come in and they, and they take the first place that Israel had come and conquered, that God had given them, and now it's lost. That, that would be hard for them to, to go through. And so here you see Jericho. I don't know if uh, you, know, you can't see that. All right. Um, you see Jericho, Jericho and Gilgal, and Gilgal is going to be part of this account that we're going to kind of walk through here. But just keep in mind, Israel came in, they came across the Jordan, and this was the first place to do that, and the Moabites did the same thing. They came in and took over Jericho. From a military perspective, that was a good, a good move on their part to go do that. And so how will the Lord extract the Moabites, actually, let me jump back here. Um, yeah, it's just very symbolic and sad that they, they're, they're at that very place, and this is the, the second judge. Um, actually, I didn't mention that. They had rest for 40 years, so they were, they were under Kushan Rishathium for 18 years, and then they had rest for, for 40 years. And here, um, they're under, uh, the people are under the Moabites, and they served Eglon, king of um, Moab, for 18 years. I'm sorry, eight years for um, Kushan and Rishathium and 18 years for Moab. Then the, then the people of the Lord cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And so that's kind of a, a strange detail in there, and that's a lot of what we're going to look at for the rest of the time is 
strange details that seem to be, why is that there? He's lefty. Why does that matter? Right? But do you know why that's significant? Hmm. You try to check the side that you put someone stood on if they're right-handed. Oh. You're checking the wrong side for a left-handed man. Right. He's going to a little bit further in the passage. That's correct. But specifically, it's actually related to his tribe. So what's interesting about this, this is in Genesis. This is Rachel as she's um, uh, having Benjamin, and she's dying. And it says, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which is talking about son of my suffering. That's the name that she gave him. But his father called him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand, right? So he's a left-handed righty, or I don't know how you say that exactly. But Benjamin is son of my left hand, I mean my right hand. And here he is, a lefty. I thought you were just going to say, because lefties are always right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's the husband of a left <laughs> Well, we have more lefties here in a second. So this is a detail. And you would think, eh, okay, that's interesting, but what, how's that going to play out? And he's already alluded to where it's going to play out in a little while. But later in Judges, in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 16, and all of these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So 700 chosen men that were all left-handed. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but part of what they say likely is the case is that they trained lefty. They learned because when they, when they were talking about left-handed man, that usually meant there was something wrong with your right hand, that you had an injury or you were a deformity when they were born, and so they would become lefty. But the Benjamites actually trained to, with both hands, and, and they were good with their left hands as well. Are you sure it wasn't so they could just say, ah, I'm not really a left-handed <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> we will see where, how it plays out. And so, oh, and the other piece of that is to understand that um, he's bringing tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, in Jericho. Okay? We're going we're gonna to touch on that more. Because that's not after the fact. They didn't say, hey, you're our deliverer. We'll send tribute by you. No, his job was that he was delivering tribute. He was already doing that. <clears throat> um, so in verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Another interesting detail. You say, why would that be there? Presenting tribute in the city that the Lord had given them so powerfully. I mean, not only did they lose this for a city, but now they're going and paying off the enemy and giving tribute. And the word that's used there is actually a similar word that they use for like the grain offering. And so it's an offering. So now it's even worse because now they're going and making an offering to this enemy in the first city that they had where God had powerfully given them that city. That, that's that's got to be devastating. If you think about being in that place where he, he has to come and give tribute. They want to worship God. Right? They want to give offerings to God. They have been commanded to give offerings to God. And here they are giving tribute offerings to Moab in the city that God had given them. Uh, one commentator, Butler, draws out the irony of Ehud, uh, whose name means, where is majesty, bringing tribute, offering to a Moabite king in Jericho. And then we have Eglon was very fat. We may be tempted to see this as an insult, but it's not an insult. It's actually just an, an indi indication of abundance. Like he did well, and that was paying off. Like today, it would be like Jeff Bezos' yacht, right? That just, that just shows that you're doing really well. If you have a, whatever, 200-foot yacht or whatever it is, I, I don't know. But that detail isn't there just for that purpose. It's, it was also a factor in his death, we're going to see in a minute. But that same commentator, Butler, uh, sees this detailed as Eglon is pictured as a fatted calf ready for slaughter. Like that's, that's some of what's kind of behind the scenes, according to him. Scripture doesn't say that directly. But that's the picture that, that there is being given here. <clears throat> Verse 19, um, so he came, he gives him tribute. 
And then in verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded, silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So what happened to Ehud at, at Gilgal? Right? So he's headed back. We saw that, that map. He went to Jericho. It's not like he's walking out the door and he's like, oh, I forgot, and he goes back. No, he's down to another town. And he sends the people on, but there's something that happened at Gilgal that made him decide to go back. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. But what happened at Gilgal historically at this point? Maybe something about seeing those idols stirred something. Okay. I think that's on the right track. What else happened at, at Gilgal? When they came to get Jericho, what, what happened at Gilgal? Do you remember? Joshua took 12 stones out of the Jordan and put them at Gilgal to represent them coming in to the Promised Land. And so here he is, just brought, offering tribute to this Moab king, and he's headed back, probably dejected, right? I don't know, Scripture doesn't say this. And as he goes through, this is the very place that the stones were placed to say the Lord has brought us this far and what was about to happen in Jericho. And again, just consider the, where your mind would be if you were those people, if you were Ehud, and you had just done that. You had just given an offering to the enemy. Ones that the Lord said, destroy them. Right? They're, they are his enemy. We're not going to have time to read uh, Joshua 19, uh, 4, 19 to 24, but that's where that account happens there. And I would just compare it to, remember, a lot of what is being spoken of here is they did not know the Lord and they did not remember his works. And so if you think of 9-11 in America, I don't know if we have any that were, was there anyone here that doesn't remember 9-11? They were too young. Right there. Uh, your dad's pointing you out anyways. So, Yeah. And so it's an amazing thing because we might go to that memorial at the World Trade Center and that would have a different impact on us than it would for somebody that didn't experience that. Right? It, it would just impact us differently. And they, and they had forgotten. And whatever it was that happened in Ehud here, he turns around and he's going to go back. And um, he does it in a way that he intrigued the king with a secret message from, from God. And so, really, this point, we're going to start seeing God's providence and preparing somebody um, and, and bringing these very things about, how God's providence actually works in the midst of those things. Because he tells the king, I have a secret from God, and, and what's the king going to do? Um, you know, actually, before we get to that, Ehud could have, when he was there, could have rushed forward and stabbed the king and just see what happens. But he didn't. He, he, he walked away. We don't know exactly why. Yet the Lord is organizing these circumstances. Um, so he could have rushed forward, killed the king when he first delivered the tribute. Scripture doesn't tell us what was going on in his mind or what caused him to turn around at Gilgal. What Scripture does tell us is when the right opportunity came, he took action. And see, his, his preparedness is the thing that helped him take action in that moment. There's a quote from Andrew Murray, every providence is God's will, whatever happens, Meet God in humble worship. Every precept is God's will. Meet God in loving obedience, with loving obedience. Every promise is God's will. Meet God in it with full trust. A life in the will of God is rest and strength and blessing. The will of God must first live in us if it is to be done by us. And so you're seeing that, that tension, that dynamic of the will of God and the, the will of man, what man can do in response. And we see that here in this passage because Ehud was before the king and left and came back, right? And the providence that's happening in the midst of all that. All right, I think I've got to move along here. So in verse 20, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the cool roof, uh, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in. Uh, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, 
and he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. So again, some, some pretty interesting details that we have, right? This is the pinnacle of the whole account. He comes back, he's been there, he turns around at Gilgal where he sees these other idols, he comes back, he gets before the king, he told him I have a secret message, and the Lord has organized the circumstances that the king sends everybody out. And just like he said, that, that sword being on, that big dagger being on his right thigh, they're not necessarily gonna check that. It's funny, when, when we go up to the prison, there are times just over the years in which sometimes the guards up front are way more lax. And like I remember one time we were there on New Year's Eve and they were extremely lax. They're like, whatever, go do what you want, right? And you would think, oh, this is great, right? No hassle, don't have to go through scanners and being pat down and all this stuff. No, the opposite. Well, what else is getting in here? Because they're not looking at anything, right? And so it was, it was easy for them to miss. And so the king on the roof by himself, the perfect circumstance that Ehud needs. And there's lots of details here, including the gory details. And are these details needed? He was sitting alone. This is exactly what he needed. Ehud was left-handed, um, so was able to keep his sword. Whether he got searched or not, we don't know. Um, and Ehud was, uh, yeah, if the soldiers searched him, they missed it. <clears throat> And why the detail, we'll, we'll get to the end of that, why the detail about the fat closing over the blade and that he left the blade in there? Why that detail? What does that inform us of? I was hoping you had an answer because I'm not sure exactly why. It doesn't say, don't really know, none of the commentators really mentioned it, right? But what I can tell you with confidence that the word of God doesn't have frivolous details, right? That, that's intentionally there. And exactly why, I, I don't know. If you do, let me know. Um, well, clearly it didn't just scratch it. Okay, yes, it's fully in, yes. One obvious but not necessarily relevant mm -hmm. would be he left the sword behind. Therefore, Israel is not going to have the option of putting that sword on display to celebrate each of killing that king. Okay. No, no big trophy that they can carry home. One thing that I note mm -hmm. is that it's going to be a long and nasty death. Yeah. Because it doesn't sound like he really got the, the upper of like really yeah. organs, but he hit the intestines. So yeah. he's going to die of nasty infection all through his body as the, as the dung gets into the rest of his body and causes sepsis. And yeah. Okay, thank you. The medical examination, excellent. So what about, speaking of dung, what about the dung? Was that, the dung came out? That's puzzling. Like, is that needed? Did, is that a detail that we need to know for some reason as it relates to this account? Sorry? Yes, or it wouldn't be there. We don't know why, but it wouldn't be there. For yes, it is needed. It's a good shorthand to emphasize that this king did not get an honorable death. That's, that's actually one of the things that they talked about, leaving the blade in and stuff like that. But I think there's another reason for the dung. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And so this, this very thing, because Ehud, when he leaves, he actually comes out, locks the door, and takes off. And so the dung coming out, when they come to the door, what happens? They smell it, right? So that, like, that seems like a, a strange thing. Trust me, it, it, it definitely seems like a strange thing. But I don't care how long Ehud planned and trained, he probably did not say, I got to make the dung come out for my escape. Like, that's probably not what he thought through. And so the dung coming out here in this passage is by the providence of God. Now that's a, that's a strange thing to say, right? That, that, that just feels odd to say something like that. But that very thing is what helped the guards delay. They said, well, clearly something's going on there, right? So they waited and waited and waited, and that give, gave Ehud enough time to, to um, escape. Ehud escaped while they delayed, 
and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. So now, again, no details here are, are meaningless. And when he passed beyond those idols, the second time he went by Gilgal, he went by those idols. It's mentioned there's a purpose in that. I'm not sure what that is, why they mention it again, but it is not accidental. Maybe he's thinking, like, the two, two kind of things. As he goes by, perhaps he's considering those won't be there long. But that's not what happened, because Israel very quickly went back to idolatry, right? And that's, some of the commentators mention this very thing, and they say, you know, it may be he saw the idols, he knew about them, and he didn't do anything about them. But he's escaping at the time. That's hard to, to reconcile why he would do anything at that point. But... From here, the narrative goes on to have Ehud transitioning from assassin to military leader. Because this, that was the pinnacle of this whole account, was this very detailed thing related to the Moabite king, Eglon. And, and really, the military victory that they're about to get, and they kill 10,000 of them, is like a, just kind of an afterthought that, that they add on there. But there are a couple things in that. So he calls for the help of Israel, and multiple, so he goes in as an assassin, like people question, was that okay for him to do, to go in there and kill him in that way, right? He goes in as an assassin, but now he's, he's leading the nation. He goes back to Ephraim, and, and he brings people back in order to fight against the Moabites, because the king is dead, and it's an opportune time for them to go fight against them. But the, the passage actually talks about Israel following him, not specific tribes. And so he's transitioning from that assassin to a military leader in this situation. At the end of this, they have 80 years of peace, which is the longest in the book of Judges. Ehud, uh, Ehud also is not mentioned about judging. He's just a, mil a military leader, right? He's a, he's a deliverer for them. So... Unlike Othniel, Ehud, as much as we can see, is just that military leader. But these, these accounts, and we're going to look at Shagmar very briefly, it's a, just one verse, these accounts are actually talking about something that's pretty successful each time, right? Because they, they go, the Mesopotamia comes and invades, and they're able to repel them. Moabites come in, they take a really important city, a very meaningful city, and they're able to get them back out, and they killed all the, all the Moabites there, right? They killed 10,000 men. And so these are actually two pretty successful victories. And like Josh mentioned earlier, 80, you know, the 80 years of peace, what does that mean exactly? And what, what did that look like? Because remember, we talked about in the beginning, there's different things happening all over the nation. So there's some things that are happening in the north and south might have something else going on. But the testing hasn't ended. We will continue to go through the testing. Shamgar, um, in verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So again, he's just a military deliverer. Um, no mentioning of judging. Uh, apparently, things related to animals are our kryptonite to the Philistines, as we'll see later with Samson. Um, and, it's, and it's just a, a quick account that it, that it gives there of what he did. So as, as we look at this account, we have seen God's faithfulness to his people in every, even in the gory details. His providence through punishment helps prepare God's people by helping them see themselves and encouraging our faithfulness through knowing him and remembering his works. Because that's over and over again, well, a couple times it's mentioned they forgot the works of the Lord. And as, as we go through the book of Judges and go through these, these difficult details to actually work through, what difference does that make to us today? Do we look back and go, what a horrible people, right? They were God's people. What do we do as God's people? Because they got really comfortable at, at the um, end of the second prologue they were really comfortable with those who were God's enemy. In fact, so comfortable, they were marrying, right, and giving their daughters a marriage and taking their daughters a marriage. 
And so that's, that's what, and so that's what made them be in a place to be tempted by these very things and to fall to these very things. And what do we do in our, in our culture today? What kind of idols are drawing us away? What kind of things are putting us in a place that we're not directly rejecting God, but capitulating to what the world has to offer? What things do we find attractive in the world? How do we stay separate from the world in that way, that we would seek to honor God? That there wouldn't be other idols that are put in place? Very good. We have two minutes for questions. I don't know where the Israelites were in that line. So I already got the answer to that. I don't know is probably my answer, but you can still ask. Any, any questions or comments? Okay, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time this morning, Lord, and as we, as we look at your word and just given some, some details often can be very confusing to us, Lord, that we don't always understand why those things are there. But you have, you have given these things to us, Father, that, that we might know you, Lord, that we might serve you, that we might not forget your works. Father, I pray that um, as we consider these things, that as that quote said, that we, we are trusting you in your promises and in the, in the things that you have given us, Father, that we would not depend on ourselves and lose sight of who you are, but know that even... Even the difficult things in your word are good. Father, I pray as we go now that um, if we're uh, leaving, that we would enjoy the day, that we would glorify your name and the things that we do and those going off to service, Father, that they would, um, they would just have a time where they uh, grow more into your image by the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.